Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. This is episode 54. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, workplace psychologist, podcaster, workshop facilitator, partner, mother of boys, and carer to one cat and four chickens. And how are you right now? Are you busy, busy, chasing your tail, doing all of the things, or is life kind of calm? Are you focused and attentive and productive? Of course, you can be all of these things on different days and at different times on the same day. You can be busy but calm, productive and attentive. There is a little bit of skill in it, but it's totally doable. Or you can be very busy chasing your tail but not so productive, and I've certainly had days like that recently or that's how it's felt or maybe you're very productive but you're so busy being busy and feeling a little chaotic that you haven't actually sat back and noticed your achievements. So I've been having a lot of conversations lately with clients about productivity and attention and focus and our expectations of ourselves and all of the feelings that come along with juggling all of the things, our work and our parenting and our health and our self-care and our friendships and our family and our goals and our plans. And one of the joys of hosting this podcast is that I have the privilege of interviewing experts in various topics that both affect and enhance our daily life, including our attention and our focus and productivity and the feelings that come along with those things, both helpful and unhelpful. And one of those experts is James Garrett, who I interviewed in season two. And we had a cracking conversation about understanding our brain so that we can get into the driver's seat and really manage it effectively. And we talked about why your focus and attention is kind of like a battery that requires recharging, how to get more done by working less. We talked about how to use your mind to start on difficult or unpleasant tasks, maybe the things that we're inclined to procrastinate over a little. Why eight hours at your desk is a disaster for your effectiveness. James's online programs and how he reads one book a week. And it's such a great conversation that we're going to revisit it because I feel it's kind of topical. Welcome, James. Thank you, Ellen. Great to be with you. I'm very excited that you are here. Now, can you tell our lovely listeners whereabouts in the world you are right now? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in a lovely little town in the state of Utah, in the southern state of Utah, pretty close to Las Vegas. People would probably know Las Vegas. Uh, but I'm sort of surrounded by a bunch of national parks. It's a city called St. George. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I don't think I've ever been to Utah. I may have passed through. I remember doing a tour of that kind of area, including Las Vegas, many, many years ago in my mm. very early 20s. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I do believe that Utah is a, a very, very spectacular place. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Yeah, and we're in, we're in this sort of area. People often do like the Grand Canyon Zion National Park arches us these sort of, I'm, I'm right in the heart of those national parks here. Wonderful. 
Wonderful. Okay. Well, it's lovely to have you here speaking from across the oceans and time zones and all kinds of things. James, what is Brain by Design, your organization? Can you tell us a little bit about it and its purpose? Yeah, you bet. So in a nutshell, I'm really passionate about taking the best brain and behavioral science and really making that tangible, understandable, practically useful and relevant for people's lives. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges I saw when I was doing research years ago was that there really wasn't a bridge from getting science out of the labs and into people's lives. I think positive psychology as a movement has has sort of, you know, been at the forefront of that conversation. How do we actually implement this? How do we apply this? How do we get into schools, into homes, into companies? But many, many years ago, it didn't seem like that was, the conversation was more like, how do we do more science, which of course is always needed, but, but I could see this gap, right, between, between the science and the application. And so I've been spending the last 10, year, 10 or 15 years trying to bridge that gap. I, I think that's really my passion. And so Brain by Design is trying to help both, both individuals and organizations to enhance sort of uh, I think almost like an upgrade to your brain, right? Our brains are these incredibly powerful machines, and yet we're not really that good at, or we don't really, they don't come with a user's manual, right? Um, and so it's uh, we, it's really on us to kind of figure out how they work, and, the, and science can can help us with that. Okay, so very much, well, it's, it's a passion after my own heart, this idea of taking what psychologists know and making that useful and usable to the everyday person. And so you do that via an online program, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, but yeah. also through consulting to organizations. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I love, I love the name Brain by Design. That Thank you. There is something about our brains, our minds that we can take control over, you know, through, through learning these skills, understanding this knowledge, we get some power and, and we're actually able to, to some extent, shape the way our brain works or certainly the way we use it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really both, you know, it, it, it's definitely the way we use it, but it also, because of that use, and you know this, uh, I'm sure very well, in neuroplasticity research we've now learned that the brain is deeply sensitive to experience. And so you'll wake up with a different brain tomorrow than you had today, just based on how much the brain is constantly changing, depending on what we're learning, depending on the experiences we're having, depending on how we're focusing our attention. And so if you can get in the driver's seat of that process, you know, if you can get good at um, directing or designing that process, as opposed to kind of letting it happen by default, I believe sort of across the board that we all live well below our potential and and part of tapping into that potential, I think, is getting good at at maximizing what we already have upstairs. Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's a really empowering way to think about it, isn't it? That, you know, these brains don't come with a user manual, which might feel a little disempowering, but by learning these what are in many ways pretty simple techniques mm. and applying these bits of knowledge that as you said psychologists and, and neuroscientists and other researchers have come to discover and really get a much greater and deeper understanding of over the last 10-15 years maybe that we can then 
use that plus this idea of this plasticity of the brain that we can, you know, shape what we learn based on or, or how our brain works based on what we learn and what we do, that does give us an enormous amount of control or a sense of control, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. It, the, the, one of the best examples I think of this is our attention, but the skill of directing and harnessing our own attentional capacity. Um, we know that meditation and other you know, skills or, or practices uh, help. It, it's almost like you know, weight training for our brain, right? Um, I sort of think of it as like an attentional six-pack. <laughs> but, but attention is this massive, you know, J- William James said, our experience is what we agreed to attend to. And so there's this sense in which our entire lives are actually filtered through that attentional uh, lens, if you will. And so if you know that, and and you know that other things, like you can turn on your neuroplasticity by literally just turning up the volume on your attention, then suddenly things like meditation, uh, of course they relax and calm the body, which is wonderful, but it's also a pretty intense form of mental training. Um, and it's not just meditation, it's also things like single tasking as opposed to multitasking. So given the way most of us sort of interact, for example, with the internet, um, we've got, you know, multiple tabs open all at once. We've got multiple windows. Um, I just read a statistic yesterday about, uh, we, the average person checks their emails 36 times an hour. Um, an hour. <laughs> six times an hour. I know. I read it too, and I was. This is from Adam Alter's book, Irresistible, which is a fabulous book. Adam Alter is an NYU psychologist, but there was a. Um, it's shocking, right? How fragmented actually our attention is. There's a beautiful quote by Nicholas Carr, the author of The Shallows, who said the internet seizes our attention, only to scatter it. And ever since I've read that, I, I've never been able to get that image out of my mind that there's this kind of, uh, it's almost like a war for our attention, right? Because attention is the most precious and, and kind of priceless thing we have as humans and to be empowered to be deploying that very valuable resource in very particular ways is how we kind of express our unique humanness, right? This is what we have that, that maybe animals don't. Uh, is 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 consciousness is this this ability to 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 direct what we're paying attention to and, and out of that grows our creativity our our our, our sort of presence with each, our connection with each other uh, out of that grows the effort that we invest in our sort of creative contributions in the world um, you know whether that's building a podcast or whether that's uh, you know, building a new piece of code or technology, all of that comes out of, it's almost like a, they're all gifts from attention. Um, and so being in the driver's seat of that attentional, kind of the attentional seat of your mind gives you amazing abilities. And without it, if you're sort of at the whim of all of these other forces that are vying for your attention, then your, your life on some level ends up being lived for you by other people's priorities as opposed to your priorities and your, uh, what you were trying to create. So that really is at that simple, well, seemingly simple idea mm-hmm. that we can really harness something as straightforward as our attention, perhaps using something like meditation in order to control so much of our 
experience, both that daily kind of moment by moment experience, but also our pursuit of our goals, uh, pursuit of our projects, our contribution back into the world, which is an amazing way to think about that power that we have over our brain, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's under, I think it's sort of, I don't think this is intentional, but I think we sort of undervalue it. Uh, even, even things like the way offices are set up. So open office floor plans are very trendy, at least in the United States. And there's a few reasons, right? One of their, they're economical. They're very, they're very cost efficient. But, but the other one I think is it sort of gives the experience of flattening power hierarchies. And of course, there's a lot of trend toward this in tech companies, but the costs of, of, of a sort of uh, chronic state of being interrupted is, is just vast in terms of our ability to focus. You can't, you know, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi in his books on flow is pretty clear on this, right? You can't really stay in flow if you're being interrupted. Con- concentrated focus is like a precondition to flow. And so if your colleague is, you know, very kindly, but, but still interrupting you in the middle of something that you were a deep problem you were really trying to solve, um, you know, it can take you, you know, you, you see, there's research out of UC Irvine right now saying it takes you about 25 minutes to get back onto the task and fully absorbed in that task that you originally work on. So people can interrupt us from the outside and we can interrupt ourselves by this sort of checking compulsion. Yes. There's that sort of dual problem, right? So it's not that people mean, they, they're not trying to uh, break each other's sort of flow states. It's simply that we just misunderstand how fragile attention is and that it's really the heart and soul of things like productivity. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really excellent point because I know, and, and similarly in Australia, the, the move towards open plan workplaces and even beyond that now to this sort of activity-based working and, and you know, constant kind of the idea of being able to adapt the way you work to the location that you're working in, mm. which I hope I'm hoping I'm actually working with a client on at the moment on this at the moment, but I'm hoping that by creating workplaces that have quiet pods and mm. that have separate, you know, they're still open plan, so we get the benefits of that collaboration and the reduction in that hierarchical structure that you mentioned, yes. or perception around that at least. Yeah. But by starting to understand some of these elements like the need for quiet, the way our brain operates when we're at our most productive, Mm -hmm. the need for environments that promote and enhance creativity, um, starting to understand what those are and then being able to, to, I suppose it's perhaps the next generation of an open plan workplace that creates these particular environments where these things are allowed to flourish so that we are more productive because I think those interruptions, as you said, on one hand, and then the second part, which I'm I'm guessing is where you're coming at in terms of the work that you do is helping people to understand those self-interruptions, the Mm. behaviors, the elements, perhaps of our digital environment, um, but perhaps to just our thinking, would that be right? Is, Is it partly our thinking that interrupts our processes of focus and attention and therefore productivity? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting. I've been meditating, you know, somewhat seriously for about two and a half years now. And in all seriousness, just from a personal experience with the practice, I feel like it's changed my 
my own brain pretty dramatically. I, again, I have no, I just have experiential evidence, just, just my subjective <laughs> experience of how much I do or don't feel in control of my own attention. Uh, and, but from that perspective, it's been pretty, it feels dramatic it, uh, yeah. from, from, from when I started. Um, and I do think, but it's a very slow process, right? And it, as, as it is with physical exercise, you know, the, the changes are, are quite gradual. And so, uh, and they, and they're cumulative, they build up over time. And so I, it's not, I, I, I couldn't have necessarily predicted how it would feel when I began, but now that I'm on this end, and, and I, I still feel very much like a novice. I, I, I know there are, there are others that are well, well, <laughs> the down the track. well beyond uh, what I can do. Um, but, but I've been shocked, actually, at how much of a difference it's made in this way where I, I feel like I don't have those sort of interruptive thoughts, right? Or if I do, I can at least see them know what's happening and depending on my sort of state of kind of willpower depletion or charge, let's call it my sort of mental energy, uh, I will either realign and, and refocus on kind of what I was already working on. So I don't jump to a new tab or whatever that looks like. Or if I do go for a distraction or an indulgence that in that way, I know exactly what I'm doing. There's, you there's no, it consciously. it's very conscious, right? It's my choice at this point. It's to go my and choice that I'm watching or, some, yeah. you know, entertaining clip on YouTube or, or whatever that is. Yeah. That's yeah. Okay. So that's really interesting. I have just started, look, I've dabbled, I've done yoga for many years and I've, I've learned a lot about the mindfulness element and the process of meditation. Obviously I've done all the reading and, and spoken to lots of people about mindfulness and meditation and the benefits of it, particularly from a well-being point of view. Yeah. But this attentional element is slightly different. And I've just started again. I have dabbled and, and not found the right path to formal meditation for me yet. So I've just, uh, one of my colleagues here in Australia who I interviewed for the podcast a, a little while ago, Dr. Susie Green recommended an app called One Giant Mind, mm. which kicks off with a 12, I think currently a 12 day program. So I'm on day 10 of my 12 day program. Yeah. And then so I've got, I'm about two and a half years behind you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. No behind or in front. Yeah. Look, I, I find it interesting because I think even in that small amount of time, I am starting to notice a difference as well. And, and it's consciousness of my thoughts, not so much the content of the thoughts, but that experience of your brain wandering off <laughs> when mm. you're supposed to be doing something else and the ability to notice that and bring it back to the task at hand. Right. So I think I'm already finding that experience or, or noticing that experience. And I suppose I'm interested from your point of view being, you know, two and a half years down the track and, and really, yeah. you know, feeling that this has made a significant difference. Do you feel that you are more productive now than perhaps you have been or procrastinate less or how does this actually play out for you? Yeah. Actually, now that I'm reflecting on it, it's been about, it's been, I started about June, 2016. So it's been almost exactly two years. As okay. that's, yep. that's about the time. So no, I would say, and it hasn't been a ton. I, I actually can, 
add up the hours because I use a very particular app. And it's not like when you add up the amount of hours, it's really not that much time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, I don't even know. But it's, it's been, it's been, you know, a lot of sessions, but they're really only the sort of 10 to 20 minute sessions. They're not long. Um, I would say, you know, one of the things I think it's done in my relationships is like, I go to a, I, like, I'll go to a conference and I'll be engaging with someone in, in whatever they're interested in or whatever the conversation kind of goes to. And what, what I've found is that I, I feel it reflected back to me a little bit, meaning that I, I find that, that people will sort of tell more of their story, right? They'll, they'll, they'll open up. It's like, it's like it sort of sets others at ease when your mind is in that kind of calmer place. And as their kind of, you know, I guess parasympathetic nervous system kind of kicks in, their calming system of their body kind of relaxes, all of a sudden we're in a conversation where it doesn't feel like anybody's in a hurry. It doesn't feel like there's any agenda. We're literally just exploring an idea which is the best kind of conversations that we all want to be having, right? It's the kind of conversations I'm always having with my four-year-old, which are they're just about the world. We're just curious. Mm. And all of a sudden, it's as though I just find all of a sudden I'm getting into conversational flow. So I was at the World Happiness Summit in Miami a couple months ago. And and this has never really happened to me. You know, I, I in the past, I when I would go to a conference, you know, I'm like a, I was like a good conference attendee. I would go to all those sessions and, and whatever. But I, I just found at this conference that I was, you know, I, w- I would go and start having conversations. And, sh- and before we knew it, an hour and a half had gone by. And I, I didn't even, it's, it literally felt like, felt like flow, right? I'll, I'll yeah, blink it's, just and it's that, gone, strong, right? It? And then suddenly I'm in another conversation and I missed half the conference, which is fine with me. I'll just go back and watch the talks that I missed. And, and that's okay because I had deep interpersonal connections with a lot of different individuals that it felt like we really like created the beginnings of a real friendship. And, and that's, I think that's profound. And I, and I don't attribute it to myself. I simply attribute it to the, this practice that really is accessible to everyone. You know, as, as, it, and I just use an app called Headspace. That's, yep. that's sort of my tool or my, my the way that, that, that works for me. But, but it's like that turning up the volume on those attentional muscles in every brain in the world. This is just a natural, these are like the fruits of that kind of a practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite amazing. That's something I'm going to watch out for now as I go down my own meditation journey to Mm. see what the impact is. But I I can, just from the way you've described it, and I have the benefit of seeing you, which my, um, which my audience, the audience don't, but you know, I I can see from your body language and your expression, you know, just how powerful those moments or those experiences have been. And Mm. that idea that just by being able to reduce some of that mental clutter, by stop that kind of jumping around type, you know, what the, what the Buddhists would call the monkey mind, yeah, um, you know, yeah. getting rid of those monkeys <laughs> right. and allowing things that, that, that has, you know, is enhancing attention, but also therefore enhancing relationships and everything that flows 
from that, you know, in, in a learning setting like a conference, it's, it's, I suppose, opening yourself up there to deeper conversations about topics that, you know, not only are producing friendships and, and collegial type relationships, but also opportunities for thinking and learning and bouncing ideas off of each other, which yeah. does, again, yeah, amazingly powerful all from this simple and it really is pretty simple like we said you know we both have apps different apps and there's plenty of others out there that allow you to start to take power over your mind get into the driver's seat and through a really simple process that also feels amazing when you do it It also feels (laughs) amazing great yeah yeah Yeah. um you know it can have such an incredible impact i think that's really illustrated for me at least and hopefully for for our audience the power of this idea of, of your taking your brain and using it by design. Yep. So that's given us some wonderful practical examples. James, tell us a little more. You have a, a online program that you run called uh, Brain in Mind, which is another fantastic title. Thank I do you. like your name, <laughs> your titles. <laughs> tell us a bit about the course itself. So the course is divided into three different modules, one on productivity, uh, one on habits, and one on happiness. And so they're each four weeks long. Within the next week or two, I will actually have sort of an on-demand version of that course. So it'll be sort of a, a pre-recorded on-demand, and that will be broken into three separate courses. Uh, but as I've taught it, and I've taught it maybe 10 times now, I do it live. Uh, I'll do another one starting May 29th, but I'll, they, they're, um, they're li- I teach them live. So they have a little bit of interaction. People ask questions and that sort of thing. Um, but we go over, you know, in, I spent about a, well, it's been a lot of years building it, but I, I've really tried to digest the, the latest and greatest uh, neuroscience, you know, behavioral science, psychology uh, around, you know, in the productivity module, we go into how to get more done by working less, which is a crazy idea, but ends up being scientifically true. I'm going um, to ask you about that in a moment. <laughs> uh, we go into, um, today I just did a session on willpower and, and managing that mental battery. We go into distractions and multitasking, how to manage and kind of deal with the realities of the internet and, and smartphones. Um, motivation, so self-motivation is is now sort of scientists have discovered a sort of a learnable skill. It's not, motivation is this kind of mysterious thing, right? We have these on and off days and how do you get better at understanding what's happening when you're, you know, demotivated? And, 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 and then how do you actually get uh, to a place where you are, you, you know, you can kind of self-propel? And this, this isn't what, you know, traditionally has kind of been the, I guess, domain of, of self-help or the personal development space. Um, we're getting a lot clearer on what does and doesn't work. I think of I think of it sort of as like the science help movement instead of the self help movement. Um, but then, so that's productivity. We go into habit formation. Why your brain loves habits, um, uh, and, and why habits are so powerful. You know, if you can get good at that skill of this sort of meta skill, I guess, of forming, building, forming and building positive habits, then you really can get good at almost anything. Um, whether that's learning a language or, or, or learning a musical instrument or, or, or being a better listener or, or being, you know, doing every morning, the first two hours of your day, you, you knock out the hardest project. Those kinds of workflow habits, other types of habits, 
really make a massive difference. You know, if you look at writers and artists, they're not so, they live by their routines. You know, they, they seem a little eccentric. We, we call them eccentric. <laughs> uh, it, but, but interestingly, you look at Mihai, Mihai, so Mihai argues this pretty strongly. They're, they're not actually that eccentric. What they do is, and Scott Barry Kaufman argues this as well, um, they, they're really good at guarding their attention. That's what they do. Their routines and rituals are all about creating space where they won't be interrupted a lot in, in large measure. And they're very good at being in tune with their own energy. And then they follow that, that ebb and flow. So there's all these paradoxes to, to creative individuals. Um, but you can get good. It's not, it's not random, right? You can get good at actually getting, again, having more of a say in turning up the volume on your creativity. So, so anyway, so that's sort of habit formation and then happiness we, we, we go through the we go through positive emotion, we go through mindfulness, um, flow, and, and just the general sort of a crash course in positive psychology. So I would describe the whole course as sort of a positive psychology course, um, if, if you were to ask me how to summarize it. But it does have these different stripes or these different flavors. Which, which all tie together really nicely. I mean, we know in, from positive psychology that, you know, these all do tie together nicely and there's underlying themes across all of those different areas. But I think they, mm. it comes across, you know, just so practical, you know, happiness is, is something that we all aspire to. Uh, habits is a very popular topic at the moment. And again, mm. I think, as you say, and I might quiz you in a moment a little more about the nature of habits, but they're relevant and important. And I think one of the challenging things about habits is we tend to have a perhaps a negative they have a negative flavor to many of us mm. because we think about bad habits we don't think yeah, about sure, sure, good habits sure, sure. and then productivity <laughs> being something that many of us aspire to enhancing our our productivity or at least feeling like we're more productive i know on paper, when I look at what I get through and I have to remind myself consciously to do this at the end of every week or even at the end of every day, you know, I can be enormously productive. I do a lot of stuff and I get a lot of stuff done. But even mm. in the doing of that, I don't always feel that I'm productive. I still, because of my negativity bias or whatever it might be, mm. beat myself up because I'm not using every single moment of every single day as effectively and as efficiently as I can. And that's been part of my learning journey has been around that self-compassion piece involved in that, celebrating successes, realizing what I have done, um, having a bit of self-compassion and paying attention. And again, it comes back to that attentional idea of being able to say, you know, actually last week, for example, I, I had two really, really busy days. I then presented a really big workshop for an organization and which was really successful, got some other stuff done in the afternoon. And on the Thursday, I got out of bed in the morning and I went, I can't do anything. I am so Mm, tired. I had just, I think, worn myself out. And I actually spent much of the day working with my laptop from my bed, which is something I never, ever do. But I, again, that awareness thing said, you know what, today my body is telling me, my mind is telling me that I need to ease off a little bit. And there was that kind of mental challenge of, oh, this is not good. This is not what you should be doing. Yes, um, yes, yes, and yes. allowing myself, as it turns out, it was a reasonably productive day <laughs> um, oh. just because I just sat and just caught up on the things that I could catch up on using my laptop while I mm. stayed in bed. <laughs> but, I'm not sure this is something I really want to publicly acknowledge, but um, 
all of those, you know, that's, there's a bit of mindfulness in there, a bit of self-awareness in there, a bit of self-compassion in there, as well as productivity um, and, the, and the nature of our energy and paying attention to our energy, which I, I can, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm guessing, are probably also themes that perhaps you pull in across these three different realms. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, it, it's interesting one of the one of the things I'll find with people I'm working with is this. It's almost like we need permission to give ourselves self care, right? Yep, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not alone. It's, it, 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 you know, it's there's a. Again, I'm 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 less familiar with Australian culture, but but, but uh, in the states, there's such a there's such a doing culture. We're such a doing culture, right? It's it's go go go. Is sort of the the mantra for what it means to be successful or what that's the formula that leads to success. At least that's what we've always believed. And, you know, when you look at the highest producing individuals, I, I'm more and more convinced that the ones who last and the ones who make the greatest contributions don't actually follow that formula. Um, the formula that they follow is something more like go, recharge, go recharge, go recharge. Um, you know, there's this great story of the CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner. He's, uh, he takes every, every day, he takes two hours uh, and he breaks it into 30 minute blocks, those two hour, four 30 minute blocks. And he inserts those 30 minute blocks into his day. And then he tells his assistant no interruptions. This is my time to schedule nothing. This is my buffer time. This is my thinking time. This time I go for a walk, I take a nap, I do whatever. But this is like, you know, guarded time. Uh, and he calls it his most important productivity tool. So, so here you have one of the most highly successful CEOs in Silicon Valley who has tons of demands on his time. And he takes 25%, assuming he works an eight-hour day, I don't know, uh, but, but, but takes 25% of his day and schedules nothing. <laughs> and, and then he calls it his most important productivity tool. And he swears, this is just, you know, and, and I think people on this level, so Atul Gawande is another great example of this very famous uh, surgeon who wrote his he multiple, you know, so he's a best-selling author, three books. Uh, he's an advisor to the World Health Organization. He's a MacArthur Genius Grant Fellow. He's, you know, it goes on, the list goes on. He's an NGO, he founded an NGO. Um, very, very well-known uh, individual. And they've um, been very known for being very balanced, right? And so the paradigm shift of go, go, go to, yes, go hard, right? You know, when you're in these concentrative states. And again, that's what we know leads to flow and peak states of mental performance, being all in on the thing. It, it's sort of like it requires an equal or, or at least it's like a pause. It's not really stopping. And I think that's part of the problem is we feel like if we walk away from our computer, we're not being productive. Not we're not yeah. doing anything. What are we doing? Well, and psychologists have now discovered that your mind is doing all sorts of things once you walk away, especially if you're not demanding anything from your attentional muscles. So if you go for a walk in the park, uh, we know green space does this in particular now. The evidence is pretty clear on this. But moving your body in almost any way, yoga, stretching, 
um, exercise of almost any form, uh, taking a nap <laughs> in the middle of your workday. So, so, so uh, you know, the, the, the historical examples on this are, they're all over the place. Pe- the, the most, you know, Charles Dickens, for example, used to take two, hour, uh, two, to, two to four hour walks in the afternoons um, wandering. Right, Michael. So, so Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Walter Isaacson just wrote another biography of Leonardo da Vinci, and there's this great quote. So, there's a story where he's painting the Last Supper, right? So, Leonardo da Vinci, right, quintessential Renaissance man, one of the most pro- prolific and produ- productive humans we've, the, the planet has ever seen, and, and and yet you look at his work patterns; they look nothing like the modern workday, which is interesting, isn't it? And, and it which is interesting, right? And again, Jeff Weiner, like that goes against everything. If you were to come in my office and, and you were my boss and I was just relaxing with my hands behind my head, uh, staring up at the ceiling, like it's, it's socially, it's a, there's, a, there's cultural workplace taboos that we feel like we can't cross. And yet, when you look at what, again, really prolific folks have done, they just don't burn themselves out. And so anyway, back to Leonardo da Vinci, what he what, so he's painting The Last Supper, and his the person who hired him, the the patron or the one paying him to paint the do the painting, um, he's like Leonardo. You're not coming into the office very much lately. <laughs> like I don't I don't hardly ever see you. Where do you where do you go? You need to be making better progress, right? This is his boss essentially. And so the story goes. He looked at his at the his boss and said, "Look," he said, "Sometimes the greatest geniuses." get more done by working less. And what Leonardo da Vinci knew by intuition and stumbled upon is that our brain is doing all sorts of work while we're letting it relax. Most of it's unconscious, so we don't experience it. But what happens is once you switch from that stay on task mode, that focused mode, which is what most of us are in most of our workday, and you switch in the psychologists call it executive mode, when you switch to, I call it creative mode. Scott Barry Kaufman calls it imagination mode. In the, in the literature, it's called mind-wandering mode. Um, basically, you're accessing a totally different part of your brain. They, they call it the default mode network. So, so the part of your brain that pays attention, which is right behind your forehead, uh, it literally goes off. If you look at it at an fMRI machine, it, it goes quiet. And then you activate this, this suite of regions kind of deeper in the brain that are your deep problem-solving regions, meaning they're problem-solving problem in totally different ways. They're much more free associative. They're much more flexible and, and, and they're much more playful. So this is why we have, the, our, you know, 72% of people report having great ideas in the shower. That seems really random. <laughs> you know? It does. It does, it but I know me. It happens to you. It happens to me. I actually keep a, I, I use something called Aquanotes. I keep a little notepad that are waterproof in the shower because I, I'm constantly having good ideas in the shower and I, I don't want to lose them, right? I, I have been known to jump out of the shower and quickly record things on my phone. Record, <laughs> right? Yeah, like you've always got to have something there, right? Um, but we know this now. Creativity happens in, in relaxed states of mind again and again and again. It's like we, we, here we are turning up the volume on our on our workers in our workplaces, the volume on their stress levels. 
and yet we're sitting here on, on the on the other hand saying we're fans of innovation and creativity. Well, if you know anything about the brain science, you know you've got to keep, keep people in relaxed states of mind to have anything yeah. creative come out of yeah. out of their brains. Stress um, is not good for creativity. It's not good for creativity. It's not good for mind wandering. You you actually can't kick into mind wandering mode. So if you want to actually get good at accessing your creative brain and use it as a recharge so that when you go back to your computer, you've got a full battery and, and you can go that, do that deep dive again and get into peak states of, of concentration. You've got to go between these states throughout the day. You can't just stay an eight hour day is a marathon for your brain. Um, and we, we know you can concentrate for about 90 minutes after that. If you're not at least taking a five minute walk, um, you might as well just kiss the next, you know, a couple hours goodbye. I mean, you're mm. going to be highly unproductive, mm. um, or at least your productivity will be highly compromised. And again, we got high, we, and we, we feel this, right? We, 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 what happens at 3 PM? This is like the deepest, most tired slump of the day, right? This is when our, our natural biological rhythms are down. And yet we force ourselves to keep working. Why? We're knowledge workers. Make, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's interesting, actually, because I had um, Dr. Sarah Mackay, who's an Australian neuroscientist. Well, she's actually a, a New Zealand by birth, but now based in Australia. And she's a neuroscientist here. And she is a, she spoke on the podcast about her... Um, napping um, and the fact that she is a firm advocate of the nap for, again, that productivity. So the way she explained it, which made a lot of sense to me that we spend a lot of our time fighting the urge to sleep, particularly at that kind of 2.33 o'clock point mm-hmm. in the afternoon and we fight and we fight and we fight and we tell us yes. that when tell ourselves we're not allowed to do it and this is bad mm-hmm. and we force ourselves to kind of push through and she said that for her when she realized that you know this was her brain telling her something and that she should act on that and she therefore went and now takes a, a 20 minute nap yes and this helps not only with her productivity but she said also her uh, emotional self-regulation so her moods um you know kids come home from school and far less likely to be cranky at them because she's just taken this little opportunity to recharge and so again for me in there there's an element of this self-compassion allowing ourselves recognizing and and this Mm -hmm. i can understand or i suspect is your purpose here when you talk about this stuff is to give us the knowledge and the skills so that we can start to say right I'm not just going to fall into this pattern of behavior that society tells us is the way we should work or the way we should uh, study or the way we should enact our productivity. I'm going to take control here, listen to what my body says, listen to what I know the research says, and actually be more proactive in managing my time, my day, my productivity. I will nap if I need to. Although, Again, keeping the naps. I think Sarah said twenty minutes is sort of what we should be aiming for. That's exactly four, right. Yeah, it's a four-hour nap. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly twenty. It's, so the the optimal time to not feel groggy is twenty minutes. You're yep. exactly right. 
and walking as well, because I know, I mean, we're talk, talking about giving our brains time to relax. We, you know, we can force that focus for uh, our 60, 90 minutes, whatever it may be, but then giving our brains a little bit of time off. But my understanding from everything that I've read says that doesn't mean sort of sitting and watching YouTube for 20 minutes as a break or watching TV, that there are mm. better forms of rest for our minds if we want to kind of produce this level of creativity and problem solving. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so what will happen is your brain is really good at demanding a break. It's really bad at telling you what kind of activity <laughs> you should be doing during that break. Yep. Yep. It will crave distraction. So, so think of it this way. Anytime you have the urge to go on like an internet distraction thing, whether that's YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, yep. or, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, that's a trigger that should, that should be able, you should be able to, over time, you'll start recognizing, oh, my brain is asking me for a break. But again, it's not good at telling me what's going to actually recharge my mental battery. And, and all those activities I just mentioned all require attention. Yeah. And so they're actually depleting activities. They, they, they lower that mental battery. Um, but going for a walk, um, you think of it this way, that you can't go wrong if you feel that urge to actually just, oh, there it is, step away from the desk. Just step away from the desk and go walk. And, and again, you can kind of decide what you're going to do once you start walking. Yep. But, but again, it's that first moment when you feel it, oh, that's the trigger. If I feel my finger wandering up to open a new tab to search social media, <laughs> then I, it's an if-then plan, right? If I feel that, then I walk away from my desk. Yep. And then again, do whatever you want. Go outside. If you have a little track, if you've got a little park nearby, it doesn't matter. Just start moving your body. And even five minutes has been shown to boost, to come, when you come back, it reorients you. Part, part of what happens in that afternoon slump is when you get, when your brain gets tired, you start losing sight of what the original goal was for the task you're working on. And so you start drifting into, now what was I doing here? And where was I going with this? And suddenly like, and what it does when you, one of the things it does when you, when you go for that little walk and come back, it like crisps up your, it reorients your goal. You, you, you can find, you can see again with fresh eyes, oh, that's what I was doing. And, and suddenly you have increased boosts of, of concentration. Okay. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I, I do a bit of writing and I know if I really slog away at an article or a chapter that I'm writing for a long period of time, when it starts to feel like more and more of a struggle, if I do get up and walk away, I can come back and I can see that not only has my, I suppose, energy, enthusiasm, focus started to wane, but also more than likely I've started to kind of wander off topic a little bit. And the reason I'm finding it so hard to find the words or to find the ideas that I'm working on is because I've actually lost the focus or, or lost track of what it was I was supposed to be doing. That process of getting up, walking away, coming back, and again, rereading it after a little break does, yeah, reorients me back to, oh, that's right. No wonder it got hard because I really wandered off topic here and was getting into areas that I haven't yet thought through or started to, you know, examine the research or whatever it might be and, and having to, to come back to that helps. And the crazy, the crazy thing about it, and this is a really hard paradigm shift for, for most people, is that when you're going on break, your brain doesn't turn off, mm. 
right? It's, it's not like a light switch that's turning on and off, like I'm on if my It is a light switch, but it's turned sideways. It's just switching between two different modes. It's an executive mode or creative mode. So when, you, when you're going for that walk, what you're doing is if you, you, your brain knows what it's trying to solve, if you can clearly and consciously define the problem or, or whatever it is, the objective you're trying to achieve, that's what your conscious brain is good at, is, is, sort of getting, is getting clear on what it is you're trying to solve or, or, the, or whether that's writing a page or a chapter for that day or a blog post or whatever that is. Get, get clear on that goal and then, and then literally just go for that walk. And it doesn't like, so the, so the five minute walk is sort of like a, it's like a burst. The walk, kind of walks I'm talking about now are a little bit longer, right? You can go on 30 minute walks. You know, when, when you're doing this sort of deep reflective work where you're trying to be generative in your content, I actually recommend people go on kind of a 90-30 um, rule where you're 90 minutes on, 30 minutes off, which isn't really off. It's just a different mode. You're just switching yeah. side yeah. to side on that yeah. light switch. Yeah, I actually take, and I haven't done it for a little while. You've reminded me to go back to it, um, what I call a well-being walk, particularly again at that sort of 2.33 in the afternoon point of the day because, and I, it's usually two kilometres, which is about 30 minutes of walking and I might pop in a podcast or something. And I'm, I'm quite often amazed at how my brain, and, and I guess it is that mind-wandering mode that you spoke about, that my brain will start to not only synthesize perhaps what I'm listening to, but with the ideas of things that I was working on or new things will pop in and, and problems mm. that have felt, especially content type problems, you know, idea type problems that I've been working on or, or work type problems I've been working on. Mm. Solutions, just they just sort of pop in there occasionally, yes. not every time, not every but time. or idea or something yeah. that I'm listening to will just add a whole new perspective to a problem I was trying to solve. Um, it, it, it feels serendipitous mm. <laughs> in lots of ways, um, but incredibly powerful. And yet you're right. We're, we're not taught to do this. We're not encouraged to do this, particularly in conventional workplaces. Mm -hmm. um, I'm starting to hear workplaces talk about walking meetings. Yeah. which, you know, when I'm working with organizations, I'm a great proponent of the walking meeting because it's physical exercise. There's that relationship connectedness component with other people, um, the nature component, and yeah. then this idea that we are more creative, which I think I've read some research recently that came out of Stanford that said that yes. we are more creative when we walk, That's you know, when right. we're just physically moving from one place to another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet we, we tend to think that, well, to work, I must sit at a computer effectively for eight hours a day, possibly even eating my lunch, you know, sitting in this same spot. And then we expect ourselves to be, you know, productive and problem solving and creative, but also well, you know, physically and emotionally well. It, it makes no sense when you, when you think about it, the more you learn about this stuff. No, it really doesn't. In fact, one of the questions I'll pose to when I'm doing trainings or, or talks is, where, where are you when you have your best ideas? And almost without fail, nobody says at their computer. Because <laughs> no one has good ideas at their computer. Right? They're like in the shower, on a drive, when I wake up in the, in the morning, whatever, you know. And, and again, it's sort of like, if we think it's random, but it's not. Your brain has a very particular way that it works. And if you can get good at sort of harnessing that power, it has innate to it and learning to kind of unleash that creativity and go between this executive mode, creative mode, executive creative mode throughout your day, 
then suddenly all this, you, you're like, wow, I didn't consider myself that creative of a person, but I'm having, I'm like exploding with good ideas. <laughs> <Yeah>. ideas. <laughs> and happier for it as and well. Happier. I think yes. that's one of the other things that we forget often when, particularly in workplaces that, you know, it's, it's somewhere we spend such a large proportion of our time. The people we work with, if you work a full-time job, you could spend more time with the people that you work with than you do perhaps with anybody else in your life mm. in terms of quantity of hours. Yeah. And yet our focus on well-being and I mean it's starting to change I'm not sure a lot of it certainly not in Australia is terribly informed by the science yet Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about workplace well-being but Mm -hmm. you know it really is such an and I can hear just by speaking to you and I know it's a personal passion for me to be able to actually allow people to benefit from work in these positive ways in these ways that encourage engagement and flow and good relationships and productivity and and understanding of ourselves that you know work has not traditionally had a focus on at all right well you start realizing yeah you start realizing wait a minute you could actually you could actually get more out of your people, have them, have them be happier and more engaged, have better ideas, um, allow them to work on, you know, we, one of the things that's really restorative when we take these breaks is, uh, is growth. Like, like, you know, whether that's meditation or whether that's playing a musical instrument or, or whatever that is, but, but some, some micro growth, right? Some, some, something in those breaks that you can actually do all the while your brain is still processing the problems at work and get more done it, all while, well, it's like an equation that again, on the face of it, 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 unless you know the science, it seems really heretical. It seems crazy. Um, you know, we have these sort of taboos that run so deep that you really got to understand the science or else it just sounds crazy. But the more you unpack the science, you're like, oh, wow. And, and, and it is happening, right? Google, you look at, look at the way some of these folks are, I mean, right now, Google, uh, Zappos, Ben and Jerry's, Uber, Nike, they've all got nap pods in their offices now. Um, yeah. And it's no, it's no surprise. They just know the science, right? It's, and again, 10 years ago, that would have been, that would have been unheard of. But yeah, now it's like, five oh, years ago, even five years ago, right? So sleep science has matured. It's finally had its day. And I think, so Daniel Pink in his book, When, is arguing that the science of breaks um, is about where sleep science was five years ago. And so we'll, we'll see this start surging in terms of our sort of collective consciousness about the value and power of, of taking mindful, deliberate breaks that both increase our productivity as well as our wellness. Yeah, and I think, and this is not a conversation for today because it'll launch us off into another hour or so's discussion, but one of the challenges that I've had when I talk to organizations and workplaces about some of these notions is still there's a reticence, I think, sometimes amongst leaders to have faith that people will do the right thing given these opportunities, you know, that, that if given, you know, nap pods are put into the workplace that people won't just sort of fall about and go, I'm not doing any work anymore. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend all afternoon napping because the boss said I could, I know in Mm. Australia that that is still quite a a mental hurdle for people to get past. And I know a Mm. lot of it has to do with workplace culture and styles of leadership and all of these other complex factors in, in organizational systems. 
Um, but I think having a science basis to it, I think the work that you're doing and actually being able to lay that out to people will go a long way to helping overcome some of those hurdles, to help people understand that this is not just someone's wacky idea, mm. that there is, you know, significant substance to this that we know contributes to, as you said, all of those things around productivity, but also well-being, health and happiness. Yeah. Thank, thank you. And yeah, I, that's right. And I completely understand those concerns. I, I often will tell people, look, I, I get those concerns. Start small, right? Don't, don't bite off too much here. Take those first baby steps. Do five-minute breaks, right? Every hour or so. Just make it sort of a ritual in the, in the company. We just go for a walk every five. It doesn't have to be in lockstep, right? Just that the, the going on a, like walking breaks becomes just a kind of thing. One of my companies I've been working with does this now and they're having amazing results with it. And again, they're not long breaks. Start with those five minute walks. Um, so you're not taking too much time, right? And then just see what happens. Just kind of experiment with it at that little level. And then again, you can kind of explore from there. Yeah, I love that. That's that kind of test and learn. I was talking to people about test and learn. Just try something small, see how it goes. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, try something else, see how that goes, um, which I think is probably, well, again, we know as psychologists that when it comes to changing things, you can't change everything in one big leap. It's really interesting from organizational perspectives that when we talk about organizational change, there's this idea that we'll just do this, you know, we'll implement this plan and then the whole of the organization will change from what it is to what we want it to be. And yet that is so contrary to how the change happens or how we know as psychologists change happens. Change doesn't happen in giant steps. It happens in small increments right? as long as there's a process of measuring and monitoring as we go along. James, there's a whole heap of other things I'd really love to talk to you about, but one of the things that I did just want to cover briefly, you mentioned in the background that um, we get everyone to complete a little bit of background and you said that you read a book a week. Hmm. How do you go about reading a book a week? Because I love to read and I will read all sorts of things, but I, I struggle. I feel like I don't, again, perhaps by my own rules, my own shoulds, I should read more, I should read more. Um, mm. What are your strategies for reading a book a week? How, how do you go about that? I'm so glad you asked this. <laughs> you know, there's this concept in Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, where he's talking about, I think these are his words, he calls them keystone habits. The research has its own term for it. But reading for me has become my kind of keystone habit. It's sort of the central anchor around which the rest of my routine, my morning routine, the rest of my day kind of revolves. Um, and when I'm on, everything else goes really, really well. And if I'm off, I feel out of sorts. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as much myself, but it wasn't an easy habit to form. It took me about three months until it was sort of stable. It was, it, it came about, there was a story to it. I, 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 for years and years, I wasn't reading as much as I really wanted to, you know, um, in fact, I w- it was really, really low. And I found myself getting sucked into reading the New York Times for hours on end late at night when I was really depleted. And, and, and I just, I was just sort of, I was doing light internet reading, I would call it, right? And there came a point where I just, I knew I had hundreds of books I really really wanted to read and 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 I knew that that was sort of being 
th- there was like this moment of choice. And, and so I, I said, I'm just going to try it. I'm going to try to read a book in a week. I know that sounds crazy, but I still remember the moment that I, that I finished. It was about 1230 AM on a Sunday night. Well, I guess it's Monday morning. Uh, and I finished a book called The Willpower Instinct. And I read that last page on the seventh day. And I said, oh my gosh, it's possible. <laughs> I had this surge in self-efficacy. I had this surge in confidence. Like, oh my gosh, I can, I can, I could do it again, right? It really is possible. I can, I can do this. And then again, I went on this sort of three-month journey where I, I really had to. And it's not easy. And I, on, on some, on some level, it's a little bit crazy. It ends up being about thirty-five pages a day, depending on the length of the book. So for me, the only way I can get it to work is I've got to get up at six. And then I spend, my morning routine is almost purely reading. Uh, and then I exercise a little bit later in the day. So um, and my, my, my four-year-old gets up about 7.30. So I've got about an hour and a half window in the morning where I can get about two thirds of that reading done. And again, I'm, I'm not reading fast. I'm reading reflectively. I'm reading, I'm reflecting, I'm writing. Mm. It's an in-depth reflective process for me. Um, but but I also but I also have a few rules. I never read anything I don't want to read, um, <laughs> I, and and I keep it I keep it mysterious enough because I know there's a novelty seeking bias in our brain, where I won't choose the book I'm going to read for the next week until Sunday night. Uh, so I've got my bookshelf, and I always keep it fresh. I'm always going to the bookstore. I'll go to used bookstores, different things, just to keep my selection fresh as well. Reading is such a hard chore. It's got to feel fun, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't do any book clubs. I know that some people really love the social aspect of that. If that works for you, that's wonderful. Um, But for me, it's all about intrinsic motivation. I've got to love what I'm reading and I've fallen in love with the brain and behavior. And so most of what I'm reading is in that area, but I'm pretty particular about what I read and how I read. And then I'm I'm pretty unforgiving about just hitting it every day. And what's happened is my brain's just adapted. So, so whenever I have a downtime or I'm waiting to pick my daughter up from preschool or whatever, I've got five or 10 minutes in the car. What, guess what comes out? It's my book. It's not my phone. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> and, 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 and it's, uh, how, yeah, how many times during the day you could actually focus. And it comes back to all that stuff we're talking about in terms of attention mm. and managing your mind and, and habits. And I can see this is kind of pulling a whole lot of things together of saying, right, I will make a conscious choice here mm. um, and create that habit not only around reading in the morning, but also, yeah, then not electing to just randomly and mindlessly scroll through the phone to say, this is the snippet of time that I've got to do to pursue my reading habit and reading joy. Yeah. And I love it. And I don't, I almost feel like every time I read, I feel like a kid in a candy shop. I just, I'm so in love with what I read all day, every day. And it, and I really do enter into these states of flow. I almost feel like I've been living in flow since I started this goal for years. It, it, it feels that enjoyable to me. Uh, and it's hard, you know, there's, it's no, there's no, there's no question about it that it's hard at times. And so I don't know, you got to figure out what works for you. Sometimes I say, if you want to try something like this, start with a book every two weeks or, or something, which is a little bit more manageable. But, but again, the freshness of it, the, 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 the going through a book every week, there's something about the system and it's not a complex system. I actually track it. So I've got, I break down, I have a little bookmark 
every day. I mean, it's literally like I, like I have a post-it note and, and like this is 31 pages a day. You can see I, I, I do the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I actually with my cat, you know, I'll add up what page I need to be on for each of those days. And I put a little check mark every time. So there's these little reinforcers of progress, the sense of I'm hitting it every day. And, and I, I think that makes a little bit of difference. And it's working. And it is working, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) James, you've given me a little list of, you've mentioned a couple of books that you've enjoyed and obviously you are are a prolific reader these days so that I can only imagine that your bookshelf would be just heaving with um, amazing and interesting books to read. You've given me a little list of a couple of your favourites. Dan Pink's When, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. which, and I haven't read when yet, I'm going to, it's on my list of, of books to read, but I loved Drive, um, yeah. his, one yeah. of his previous books. So um, Adam Grant, who I also love and, and follow um, regularly and, and frequently, uh, his book called The uh, Originals. Yeah, no, uh, anything by Adam Grant. I'm, I'm a huge fan, give and take mm-hmm. originals. Um, uh, option B, I think, was his, his one on resilience. Um yeah, so Adam Grant is a master synthesizer, and I I, I feel like the sweet spot of um, the best science writers are the best storytellers, uh, and they they're masters of weaving stories and data, and and they write so beautifully, and 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 it's really a it's a it's it's a you know it's a rare find, right? It's Daniel Pink is one of them. Yeah. Adam Grant, the, the Heath brothers, Dan and Chip Heath, Gretchen Rubin, there's, there's Sean Acor, there's a, there's a handful who do this really well. Okay. And the other one that you've given me is Eric Barker's book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Yeah. So Eric Barker is, he's a, he originally started as a blogger. He still has one of the most well-known uh, science blogs out there. But this is, if you want to crash course in the sort of science of, let's call it success, um, which is mostly, you know, sort of field of psychology and, and, and related sub- or fields. Uh, Eric Barker will just take you on a whirlwind tour of that whole world. And it's in such a way, it's so entertaining to read. You, you keep, literally can't put it down. It's an okay. excellent book. You've just added that to my long list of books to read. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> James, I'm going to put the details of those books and your course and all of your contact details and your website all in the show notes for this episode. I Look, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I know that we could talk for many more hours, so we may mm. get you back on another occasion to talk in, in some more depth um, about this. I think for me, you know, a mutual passion around helping people to understand their brain, helping them to understand their behavior, helping them to take control of those two aspects as well. You know, I I think that's come through really strongly as a flavor of today's conversation. I hope people go away with that, with a sense that we do have so much more control over this machine you know, between our ears than perhaps we think we do. And simple things like uh, habits, like attention, like meditation, um, even just observing your energy levels throughout the day um, Mm. and saying, right, I get a choice in what I do now and how I do it. Go for a walk, take a nap, 
read a book, whatever it might be, um, and, and, you know, see what flows from that. Notice the changes in your productivity, your creativity, your sense of well-being, your sense of calm, your sense of happiness, because I think there's a heap in there um, that you've shared with us that could really make a, a significant, significant difference to everyday life for hopefully every one of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. You're very welcome. Every time I listen to that interview, and I have listened to it several times now, I learn something that I missed last time. So I hope if this is the first time that you've listened to it, you've learned a lot. If it's a subsequent time, I hope you came away as well with something that perhaps you missed the first time around because there's heaps and heaps in there, isn't there? Now, James has made a few changes to his online program since we recorded that interview. You can now enrol in the three modules separately. So there's Happy by Design, Productive by Design and Habits by Design. They're $197 US each and they really are great value. As you've heard in his interview, James has just such a beautifully insightful way of describing and teaching this stuff and making it meaningful. And I was a student in his original Brain by Design course and it's there's so much great content. It really made me think about the way that I work and where I focus my attention. So I really recommend it. Um, and just so you know, this isn't sponsored in any way. I don't get any benefit from Spruiking James's course. I just really love what he does. You will find the links to James's website, Brain by Design, and his courses and his bio and his own new podcast, The Deep Change Podcast, as well as a transcript for this episode in our show notes. So they're at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. You can pop over there and take a look. And one more thing before I sign off for this week. Are you on the Potential Psychology Newsletter list? We send a newsletter to our fabulous subscribers once every two or three weeks. And I spend a lot of time reading as I prepare for my podcast interviews and client workshops and coaching programs. And I try to pick the best of the articles that I read and include links to these in our newsletter. So there's usually three or four really fabulous articles that I think are worth perusing. And recent topics have included some practical tips on multitasking and goal planning and how to schedule your day for peak productivity but there's also been some more thoughtful pieces such as an article from the BBC Science Unit on whether humanity has reached peak intelligence so if you like to learn come and learn along with me we also include links to our latest podcast episodes upcoming events book recommendations and some fun behind the scenes stuff from time to time so please do check that out and sign up at potential.com.au forward slash subscribe because it's a great way for me to keep in touch with you. Okay, that's me over and out for this week. I will be back in your ears next week with another fantastic interview. In the meantime, though, thank you so much for listening. Go forth, fulfil your potential. And if I can help in any way, please let me know. You can get me at ellenjackson at potential.com.au or on the socials, just search for Potential Psychology.